Hey, up and welcome to the Temple of Blair. So this is an absolute fucking mammoth of a conversation uh, between myself, Felix Sebatius, and Kenny Garden of Blue Grape fame. This is the Blue Grape Pan-Atlantic reunion. Um, it was recorded just after Christmas and in its rawest form. It's about five and a half hours, so I'm going to split this down as much as I can. There's loads of off-the-record shit as well, so maybe this will end up looking about maybe four hours long or something like that. Um, but yeah, no, it was a cracking chat. It ends up with sort of me and Kenny cuddling up by the fire listening to Papa Sebatius's tales uh, tales throughout his career of the US arm of, uh, of Blue Grape, obviously the merchandising giant. Well, let's not waste any more time. Let's jump into it. One, two, fuck you, dapa. I'm jealous already. Felix, you've got the you've got the work shirt on. You know what I mean? It's just like brilliant. I know. I saved it. You know. I really. Uh, you know that was oh, the one. That was the one thing I saved. Uta still has the backpack. And she still uses it. All right, cool. With, well, German efficiency, mate. Yeah, exactly. Oh, still, she and I just, um, she was over in the States because she's living back in Germany now. And she was here for several weeks. So I went back east for the Thanksgiving Day holiday. And then she and I drove up to Connecticut for the TSO show. And that was her luggage. We were staying over at the casino. And she had the blue gray backpack. And the blue great backpack in me. Fantastic. There you go. And I couldn't believe what good shape it was in all these years later. Quality, mate. Quality. Quality. You know, <laughs> I, mean, I always said, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was probably our downfall. Made stuff too good. You know, I mean, made stuff that lasted didn't buy enough, you know. I know I look on eBay and I see like some of the old fear factory machine head shirt selling and i was like gee why didn't i save some yeah well i've got all my old shirts up at my mum's house and if i thought about it i would have got in amongst it earlier and got something like something decent on a sepultura shirt or something like that you know what i mean but ah. just thinking actually right now hang on i just thought of one thing that i've got lying around if i can find it Oh yeah, uh, Felix, you'll remember this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there we go. The old type of negative. negative hospital smock. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. I remember that. There you go, Brooklyn Hospital. <laughs> yeah. You know the negative. Fantastic. Look, looks brand new. And those clips that uh, were sent over, or the cuttings that I think Jim sent you. I was reading that story. About like, like the lizards. Was it a lizard? Yes. Well, that's the that's the <laughs> best story. That is the, that's be the best I don't story. Phenomenal. You know what I mean? But yeah. No, that was so, but we'll keep that. We'll keep that because like he needs he yeah. needs that one in person. You know what I mean? But yeah, I don't even no, know if I knew that. What have I missed? I know we were just talking about saying um, uh, the lizard we, story. The lizard story. The and lizard story. I'll, I'll make a note about the lizard story, but I wanted to open with, with with something in particular. So we alluded to typo when we were talking earlier, um, but one the first time I came across your name in the research, obviously the context for this is documentary on Roadrunner. I'm trying to get every angle and trying to do all the homework. 
the podcast is just a research vehicle. So what we do is we just have laid back conversations about this stuff. And then you wake up in two weeks and say, I wish I hadn't called that guy a Jim, could you edit it out? And I'm happy to do so because why not? <laughs> as long as I've got the information, it doesn't matter. But coming across the audio field, it's the first time I did. I was watching the Typo Negative DVD. I think it's called After Dark. And you featured in that, tied to a chair. And I was like, all right, what's Blue Grape? Because over, over here, the main brand we understand is probably Fruit of the Loom. And I think it's fair to say that Blue Grape, especially in the States, became like Fruit of the Loom, but for merch, like specific branded merch for bands and certain cultural offshoots. Well, I never thought of it as Fruit of the Loom, but that's a... But I do like Fruit of the Loom, so I think that that's uh, highly complimentary. Um, yeah, I think I think as I'm learning more about it, I don't, I never, because I had a, a, I was more of a gamer childhood sort of mentality, so I didn't see the Blue Grape label until later on, right? Right, and that, and that was something important when we started manufacturing <clears throat> a lot of our own blank T-shirts and other apparel items, putting our tag in there and branding everything. Because I think the kids knew that if they saw a blue grape label, you know, they knew it was at least decent quality garment, but also, you know, it, it was associated with their favorite metal bands. Mm. You know, so they, it became a, you know, a brand unto itself eventually, which, which was great. That wasn't necessarily the intention. I was going to ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll come on to that, but I really want to understand how he got tied to the chair. <laughs> oh, well... Uh, that that's very simple, but um, I have to tell a backstory in order to get to the chair. Uh, hopefully, the, <laughs> it won't be too long winded. But so, Josh Silver, the the keyboard player from Typo Negative, and I had a ultimately a very good relationship, but it started off a little bit rocky, um, as with a lot of the Roadrunner bands. And I think we had touched about this on our call. They sort of felt that they were forced to sign merchandising agreements with Blue Grape. And I know Ken had talked about this a little bit with some of the bands where you'd show up at the shows and they'd already, you never met the guys before. And there's already a little bit of built up resentment because they were forced to sign a deal as opposed to doing it uh, you know, out of their own free will. And ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, we felt that we were as good a merchandising company as Winterland or Brockham or Nice Man or any of our competitors out in the marketplace. But Josh, you know, I, I think initially had a, a little bit of anger. And uh, I had done this deal to do typo negative bloody kisses stickers. And Peter's still. Um, he did most of the merchandising approvals. Josh was really focused on producing and the music. And Peter was really the guy who was coming up with a lot of the merchandising ideas. And he was, he was my go-to guy for approvals. And he approved this, uh, this sticker. Josh saw it on sale at the concert, had never seen it before, and decided that it was an unapproved bootleg item. And I had no right to be selling it at the concert. And I get a phone call from Mike Amato, the tour manager, and he said, Josh sent you a FedEx. Don't open it. 
And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like I, I instinctively knew what Josh had done because he had, he, he had threatened before that, you know, he, he, he had said to me that I was a capitalist, which I, I was actually very proud to accept that insult because at the end of the day, I am a capitalist. And he said to me at one point, you know, you could take the typo negative logo and put it on a piece of shit and it would sell. And this was the height of their popularity. So I just had this gut feeling that he had taken the sticker and he'd shot on it and put it in an envelope and mailed it to me, <laughs> which is precisely what he did, except I knew it was coming. So I, I took my trusty typo negative bandana, put it on over my nose and mouth, put on my typo negative baseball cap, got some rubber gloves from under the sink. And, and, and I, I took the, uh, the package into the restroom and sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And I disposed of it. So that was 1994. So now we've flashed forward and Josh and I have sort of made our peace. And they're filming the video in Philadelphia at the Trocadero. And he said to me, you know, if you really want to get on my good side, you know, we want to tie you up to a chair and throw you out the window. And I was like, sure, why not? <laughs> Sounds like a great idea. Yeah. And, it, and by the way, it's pissing down rain. It, it's Halloween in Philadelphia. And they, they tie me to the chair, I think with duct tape. And then at the last minute, they take an apple and they duct tape it to my mouth. <laughs> I hadn't eaten breakfast or lunch that day. And I, I was starving. So I started eating the apple. And the director's like, no, you can't eat the apple. So they stop. They unduct tape the apple. They get a new apple. They put it on. Well, I'm still starving. So I started eating that one. I think we, we went through maybe three or four apples before I, I, I finally complied. You satiated and, your appetite. Uh, and then uh, they threw me out the window into a huge puddle. <laughs> Um, luckily I had a spare pair of pants with me. <laughs> Who doesn't um, always travel with spare pants? Yeah. And, uh, and, and it made it into the video. So I was honored, uh, to be part of it. Wow. That's quite a good backstory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's, uh, and as I said earlier, in terms of how we should approach this, we, Normally, these podcasts are, are kind of biographical. And I, I, with yourself, Felix, I'll ask you how you started and all that stuff. Now we work it way through. That's not in ignorance to Kenny. Kenny's done it. <laughs> For people who are listening and thinking I'm focusing on Felix. Um, yeah, cheers, mate. Thanks a lot. I'll sit back, have a drink. <laughs> but I think um, there's plenty of um, there's plenty of value, again, in understanding that, Felix, you're the US. Kenny, you were Europe. And together, there's this um, there's this symbiosis with the brand of Roadrunner, which I want to get into, and I want both your thoughts on it because I think we're going to have. I want I want my now foundational understanding to be developed further, and I'll try and be as academic as I possibly fucking can. 
<laughs> under, under the circumstances. <laughs> um, let's just let's just start there. So we did. We've, how did you get in the front door then, Felix? In terms of blue grape uh, in the US, we know it's, it was formed in late 88, 89, right? Well, I mean, I think. technically, I mean, blue grape itself was incorporated late nineteen eighty nine. And really opened its doors in Europe, 1990, and then opened in the U.S. and New York, 1991. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of part of the extended Roadrunner family. I I got involved with Roadrunner in 1986. Um, I, I had two, I would say, mentors that really introduced me to everyone within that Roadrunner scene. One was a woman named Holly Lane, and another was a a gentleman by the name of Scott Givens. And ironically, Holly introduced me to Scott, uh, who ended up becoming one of my best friends. And through through both Holly and Scott, I had met Case, I had met uh, Doug Keogh and Regina Joskow and Steve Ricardo, Monty Connor, I mean, basically uh, Jonas Knoxon, everyone part of the Roadrunner family. And I had been in a a punk band in New York that was trying to get signed to Roadrunner back in 86. So I was very, very familiar with all of them and their operation. I used to go up. The the band was called Low Mito. And and it was just a New York punk band. So I used to go up to the old Roadrunner offices at a 225 Lafayette Street in Soho all the time. And uh, I knew when they started the merchandising company, it was right around the same time that I started my own mail order. I'd gotten out of the band, decided I needed a job. The only thing that I really knew was music. Um, and what I knew best in music was metal. So I started a company called Metal Assault. And I was selling all heavy metal. And at this point, it was, it was CDs and vinyl, A through Z. So ACDC through Zodiac Mind Warp and everything in between. And at the very last minute, as I'm putting the catalog together, uh, I think it was Scott Gibbons who said to me, why don't you sell some T-shirts as well? It's much better margin. So I thought about it and I, I did a quick analysis. I was like, he was right. Because back in those days, you know, you could buy a T-shirt wholesale for $6 and sell it for 12 But a record, if you were going to a distributor, you were paying 11 or $12 and selling it for 14 Not very good margin. So very quickly, um, I used to advertise in Metal Maniacs and Metal Edge and all the metal magazines of the day. I put together a mailing list of about 50,000 names within a, a, a six, seven-month period. And I was sending out catalogs three, four times a year. And I was selling more T-shirts from this little startup company called Blue Grape um, than, than I was CDs or, or, or any other product. And, you know, deicide, obituary, malevolent creation, suffocation, gore guts, and... I was quite a good marketer and I had a lot of ads out and I was selling quite a lot of the product. And in 
December of 1992, I got a phone call from Doug Keogh, who was the general manager of Roadrunner. And he said to me, you know, it's a little embarrassing, but you're selling more of our blue grape product than we are. And, and they had gone through an array of people, um, that a, a guy by the name of Vinny, who was running it, and he left and went to Hawaii. Then they had a guy named Dean Brownrout, who was really a record guy. And I think he just took the job because he needed a job, and he wasn't a merchandising guy. And, you know, he, he just w- wasn't being very successful with it. And then they had a guy named Joel Peskin, who was an ex-road guy. And he was kind of running it. But I don't think any of them really had their heart in it. And it wasn't doing as well as Case and Doug felt it should be doing. Mm-hmm. And then here I come along with my little startup mail order company. Remember, there was no internet at this time. <laughs> this was all, you know, catalog mailing, you know, sending out physical catalogs, um, you know, putting ads in magazines. And... You know, Doug, who I, I knew pretty well, you know, as a friend said to me, um, you know, it's a little embarrassing, but uh, I think we're going to have to raise our prices to you. And I, was, and I got very angry. And I was like, what do you what do you mean? He said, well, it's, you know, you're selling more of our product than we are. And, you know, we're Blue Grape and Roadrunner and we should be selling more products. So I said, Doug, let me get this right. I'm doing too good a job selling your product. So you'd like to raise your prices to me so I'll sell less of your product. He's like, no, no, no. That's not what I mean at all. It's like, look, could you come in next Tuesday and have lunch with me in case? So I I went and met with him in case at a little restaurant in Soho. And Case is looking at my catalog and basically said, well, I'd like you to take over my company, Blue Grape. And I said to him, why? You know, I'm doing actually quite well uh, with my own mail order company. And he said, well, could we combine what you're doing and what Blue Grape is doing into one company? And I said to him, well, make me an offer. And he did. And, um, you know, I'll say it was a small offer back then, but uh, I had incurred a lot of debt in building up the company. And. It seemed like a good move. So uh, I was hired at the end of 1992 and I took over Blue Grape in January of 93. So nearly 30 wow. years ago. Wow. You know, and that's, and I was there till we sold the company to Sanctuary in December of 2014. Wow. So that, I think this is a good opportunity to do like a lining round of things that Kenny and I couldn't figure out but you know because i know you know because we spoke why is it called blue grape all right very simple so case had a a you know case uh likes to name his companies after things that are near and dear to his heart like his publishing company the all blacks named after his favorite team in, in new zealand uh conversely blue grape was the name of a cafe, restaurant, bar in Amsterdam that uh, Case quite liked. And he thought it was a good name for the company. I cursed him all the years (laughs) that I was there because 
I, I thought it was a terrible, terrible name. And, I, and I'm sure Kenny can concur with this, but you know, I'd yeah. get on the phone and I'd call up managers or, or anyone for that matter. I'd be like, hi, it's, it's Felix from Blue Grape. And they would inevitably say, Blue Gray? I was yeah. like, no. Or, or there was a band called Black Grape at the time. And they're like, Black Grape? I'm like, no, Blue Grape. So, uh, you know, it, it was when, when I... A question. You know, like, you're exactly right. It was always a... People would be like, it's, from, it's Blue Grape. Blue Grape? And people would be like, yeah. Blue Grape? I know. It was... Why is it? It's yeah. almost like they were going. Why is it called that? You know, like, look, that's not like, conversation. It's like marketing <laughs> one hundred and one. You want a recognizable name with a recognizable logo, and you know, it's, <laughs> when I find, you know, when we finally sold the company to Sanctuary, and I went to work for Bravado, it, it was a pleasure because I'd call up and say, "Hi, it's Felix from Bravado," and nobody, everybody knew what that was. Yeah. <laughs> it was no more blue gray or blue gray, but it, it was the name that you know we inherited, and um, the name wasn't going to change. So, I actually have a, a, an anecdote to support this. I was interviewing someone for the documentary um, two weeks ago in Derby, and it was a band, and uh, they were recounting you know, road run experiences and stuff. And at some point, they sort of huddled together, go, "Do you remember the fucking merch that always came out on Black Grape? Remember, it was Black Grape." And I had to go, sorry, lads. <laughs> it's blue grape. It's like fucking blue grape. That's the one. Yeah. So even yeah, now, exactly. <laughs> that's bonkers. That is bonkers. Hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, definitely. I didn't know that. <laughs> why was it? I mean, I know we know why it was separate. Like blue grape and roadrunner were separate. Because in our conversation, Kenny, the, 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 the consensus was because it was a different enterprise. It was Angelique's baby and therefore it should be separate but but more importantly you know legally there was different ownership structures Mm. so what you have to remember is that when case initially started roadrunner he had partners he wasn't the sole owner of the company you know he had partners that over time um ended up getting bought out And, and the same thing when he started blue grape he really only started because, you know, Angelique DeFeo, who had come from the fashion business, it was sort of really her brainstorm saying, well, Case, you know, you're selling all these records for the bands. Why are you not also selling merchandise for them? So they were 50-50 partners in Blue Grape, but obviously she had no um, ownership share in Roadrunner or in, in any of the publishing entities. Mm. So it had to be legally set up as separate companies. Which is, and you mentioned Rodon had partners. I know the first one. I know that was Jan van der Linde. Right. I mean, Jan was, uh, you know, his main partner. I believe there were some other investors early on. Okay, I might have to ask you to rem- think real fucking hard about that because I didn't know that. <laughs> um, but no, if it does come to you, let me know. Interesting. Um, so 1992 is where it all starts kicking off. Where about, is it solely merch 
the Blue Greats dealing with? Or were there other revenue streams within that? And was it solely band merch? Or did you, I remember reading somewhere that you had the James Bond license. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you know, part of, you know, my job when I came in and took it over, initially it was only Roadrunners bands that we were merchandising. But um, there was a company in, in the market called Brockham at the time. And they were the biggest merchandising company in the late 80s, 90s. And there was maybe, you know, a half a dozen major merchandising players handling all the band merchandise. And I always idolized the Brockham model. And I wanted Blue Gray to be like Brockham and maybe a, you know, a smaller version of it. But I, I, I really liked the way they operated and they didn't limit themselves to just band merchandise. Once we mm. had set up a, a proper distribution network, especially a retail distribution network where we were selling to retail stores all over the world. So this was outside of the concert merchandise. This was outside of the mail order merchandise. We, we were selling to, you know, Hot Topic in the U.S., Spencer Gifts, uh, EMP in Germany. We were selling to retailers all, all over the world. And we realized that, okay, well, we, we set up this mechanism in this machine. We could, in theory, we could sell anything. So we started looking, film merchandise was sort of natural. And, you know, probably jumping ahead uh, a, a bunch of years because we're going into like 95, 96. But I did a bunch of deals with New Line Cinema for horror because it was the same fan base that was a fan of all the Roadrunner bands. Mm. So we were really the kings of horror for a long time doing Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Evil Dead, Halloween. And I would actively go out and, and sign those licenses from the various film companies that own those rights. And, and then we took it a step further and said, okay, well, why are we limiting ourselves just to bands, you know, on the Roadrunner label? And I know this is a Roadrunner documentary, mm. so I don't want to diverge too far. Oh, feel but, free. You know, we signed bands like Rammstein. Um, I mean, there were, there were tons of other metal bands that I have to go through all, all the old rosters uh, to take a look at, but we didn't just limit ourselves uh, just to Roadrunner. You know, we, we tended to stay within our lane of sort of the hard rock metal bands mm. because that's what our brand was known for. Um, but, you know, Roadrunner changed as well. Look, when Roadrunner signed Nickelback, which was, you know, obviously very different from you know, the Slipknots and the Machine Heads and the Fear Factories and, and the Deicides and the Sepultures beforehand, you know, we were right there signing them. And all of a sudden, um, you know, we were trying to be a bit more mainstream as they were. Yeah. Because we were sort of following their lead. Uh, the just to sort of handle the chronology of this a little bit, let's take a step back from Nickelback for the time being. But let me just iterate and say... 
feel free to go fucking off it because as much as this is about Roadrunner, the story of Roadrunner and its 40-year history is one about adapting, learning, and leading. And a lot of that is to do with how it borrowed certain functionalities and strategies from other either counterparts, contemporaries, or whatever. So if I'm sure there's a link somewhere, not necessarily a link, but there's some sort of like a neural node in my head going, all right, Blue Grape went out and did some film licensing. But so did Roadrunner. They did the Freddy versus Jason soundtrack. There's certain like, there's muscle memory across these two things, which is another reason why they're connected at the hip. But let's talk about early 90s a little bit. Because as you were mentioning like a, a distribution setup, which I'm interested in because there is a pre-hot topic world and there's a post-hot topic world, which is fucking very different. But it also yeah. speaks of the pre-nickelback and post-nickelback world. I imagine somewhere in the timeline they're about, this, they exist or the cutoff is somewhere around the same place. <clears throat> well, so- uh, well, I'll tell you a funny story. So initially, you know, when, when I came in, there was almost no retail distribution and I'll use the terms retail distribution, wholesale distribution right. interchangeably. And I basically mean selling to stores and that's a whole other animal than selling directly to consumer, you know, via mail order or in the modern, uh, you know, e-commerce era. So in order to sell to these stores, um, Case and Angelique had done a deal with a small company in Los Angeles called Direct Merchandising, run by this woman named Erin Diamond. And all she did was sell to, to stores, mom and pops, little mom and pop retailers, which back in the early 90s, there was probably about 5,000 of them. If, if you want to flash forward, just by contrast, there's probably less than 600 mm. now, certainly less than 1,000. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, Amazon has killed so much of that mom and pop business. But if you went up and down Hollywood Boulevard or Melrose, or if you went up and down St. Mark's Place or 8th Street in New York, every other store was like a little mom and pop head shop. And they all sold uh, Blue Grape and other band related merchandise. So in order to get into those stores, they'd use this third party. And the first thing that I realized is that, well, why aren't we doing this ourselves? You know, why are we using another company? Uh, again, you know, it's my, my capitalist instincts. <laughs> we're, we're giving away, you know, we're giving away a, a big chunk of the profits. Why should we not be doing this directly? And Angelique had been selling to EMP directly, which, which made perfect sense. I said, well, we should be doing this in the U.S. And Case was pretty clever. He said, look, you know, if we're going to do it ourselves, you know, we need to have something really big to launch with. And that was Sepultura Chaos AD. So all of a sudden, when we started developing Chaos AD merchandise, um, we didn't give it to direct merchandise. And I remember Aaron calling me up and saying, well, you know, where's all the new designs for Sepultura? Because that was her biggest seller. And that was Blue Grape's biggest seller in 1993, uh, 1994. And, you know, I just said to her, well, you know, we're, we're thinking about doing it ourselves. And, and I, I remember I asked her, I said, um, I understand there's a network of sales representatives all across the United States that you use to sell into these stores. 
you don't have an in-house team. Would you mind sharing that information with me? And she said, absolutely not. That is proprietary. <laughs> so she wouldn't give me the information. So, um, you know, I asked other people and I found one of our licensees who did uh, our, our jewelry for all the metal bands called Orion. Uh, and I forget Marty's last name, but you know, God bless him. I called up Marty and I said, Aaron won't tell me who all the sales reps are. He's like, oh, I'll tell you. And he gave me the whole list. He gave me names, addresses, phone numbers. And, and I, I called them all one by one. And I said, look, you know, we're Blue Grape. And they're like, well, who are you? And I said, well, <laughs> we're the one who, who holds all the licenses for all of these bands that Direct has been selling. And they're like, well, but, but we buy from Direct merchandise. Why, why would we represent you? And I said, well, we're about to change that relationship and we're going to do it ourselves. And every one of them came on board. Uh, you know, they're, they're, none of them have any scruples. They're all salespeople. Yeah. And, they're, uh, and I, I, I said, look, you're, I said, the only place you're going to get sepultura, typo negative, deicide, obituary <clears throat> is, is from us. Now, now Case was, he was very excited about this prospect. <clears throat> but, he didn't understand one key aspect that's different about the merchandising business from the record business. He kept referring to my sales reps as distributors. So in the record business, the label makes the record, but the label doesn't sell the record. The distributor actually is selling it into the store. <clears throat> in the merchandising business, it's the merchandising company themselves it is actually manufacturing the product and selling it into the stores. Our sales representatives were solely that. They, were, they did sales. They contacted the buyer and said, hey, I represent Blue Grape. They've got the new Sepultura KSAD. How many do you want? And then back then, they would fax us the order. Mm -hmm. And these faxes would come in from Camelot Music, Musicland, Hot Topic warehouse, um, rockabilia with orders, but we had a manufacturer, we had a warehouse, we had a ship in case didn't actually even realize that I had built a warehouse and that we were doing all our own warehousing because Roadrunner's product was warehoused at their distributor, which was a third party. I mean, case had many different, you know, distributors over the years. And I remember getting into this argument with him because he kept saying, well, I don't understand, you know, you're distributors. And I'm like, they're not distributors. And I remember like the light bulb went off and I could see it when he realized that what I was talking about and this look of horror came over his face because then he realized that we were holding all the inventory. <laughs> we were holding a warehouse with staffing and all these independent salespeople were, were solely that. They were just independent salespeople. And that we had to build up an infrastructure and a staff in order to be able to sell directly to retailers. And it was this look of horror. I, I take it he but, likes it lean, doesn't he? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it, it was very different than the record business. 
But, you know, God bless Angelique. Angelique basically went to him and basically said, look, Case, you know, what they're doing in the States, you know, is great. And we need to be doing this in Europe as well. And this is the future of the merchandising business. We need to be able to do it ourselves. We don't need to be using third parties to sell for us. And, and, and you know, to its credit, Case got it. But I think he was always a, a bit uh, horrified <laughs> by the fact that we had, had to build up this, you know, entire infrastructure, hire our own sales team uh, internally to manage these reps. Because the reps are all independent. They represented us, but they also represented Brockham and all our competitors as well. And at the end of the day, all they cared about was if you had the hot item that sold, and I'd go on some of these sales calls with them just to sort of understand, and they have a big notebook, a big loose leaf with all of our catalogs in it and everybody else's catalogs. And they'd go into these little mom and pop retailers who basically would say to them, what's hot? What should I buy? So you were completely dependent on your relationship with these mm. salespeople that you know, as the old the squeaky wheel catches the grease, which was something, you know, Doug Keogh always used to say, and I used to hate him for saying it, but he was correct uh, in, in his logic that, you know, when you're showing all these different uh, merchandising items to these little mom and pop retailers, and even some of the bigger chain retailers, you know, who are they going to buy? They only have limited space. They have a limited budget. Um so why are they going to buy Blue Grape as opposed to the new Batman movie T-shirt? Because to a lot of them, you know, and, and this is still, trust me, this is still the case today because I'm still involved with this, is that a lot of these, you know, in the U.S., your target buyer or your HMV buyer, um, they look at it as, well, it's a graphic T-shirt. <clears throat> doesn't matter what the graphic is. It could be Sepultura. It could be Corona beer. It could be Batman. You know, they have a space for 10 graphic T-shirts. So they're going to, what are they going to buy? So it, it, it made it pretty challenging. So you always had to maintain, you know, like a really good relationship with all of your sales reps. And you needed a team to manage them. Mm. So Kenny, just to, not to put you on the spot and do a compare and contrast. But just when when we first spoke, your one of your first observations was when you walked into Roadrunner London, and the the, <clears throat> the sort of the feeling was fucking blue grape. Now, when when Felix kind of like he kind of scaled the under, he kind of gave us a vision of the scale of the operation. It wasn't like the record business of do the thing, then fire fire and forget, like a fire and forget mechanism for each product. It was fucking you had to do everything. So it is a bit more sluggish and a bit more. Um, it's a bit more cumbersome. Do you think understanding that, or my understanding of that, or that retelling of that, do you think that might be part of the contention that Roadrunner had with Blue Grip? That it, because you said it, it felt like they were holding them, like Blue Grip might have been holding them back in terms of like day to day operations. And it kind of makes sense when you think you're holding fucking everything. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just think it was a, it was a different, it's a different animal, mm. you know, and as, you know, so from what the story you've heard is, you know, the record company always came, well, came first in this, you know, this Roadrunner story. Mm. And so everybody who was involved, it's all, it's all the music. And then the merchandise was an add-on, you know, and as Felix says, it took, it took 
a lot to grow that. And in Europe, that was... And remember, I'm coming at it from a completely different, you know, level and understanding of it than Felix. You know, he was the boss in the States, you know. And You're on the road. Introduction to it was the road. But I still think that, you know, we... You know, we turned up as like the merch people, and it was like they're like, "But we're a record company, you know what I mean? Why are you taking up our time here?" They hadn't seen the money by that point, you know. What I mean, they hadn't seen like you know what the big bands would do, you know. Although the big bands would do the the money and the and the records and stuff, when they saw the merch sales that these big bands could do, people's attitudes changed. You know, like, oh, right. Oh, wow. But in, I think in those early days, we were always kind of the sort of the stepchild in the corner, maybe with the yeah. ginger hair, you know. Exactly. I mean, we were the ugly stepchild. And, you know, that's how we were treated. And I remember, you know, very early on going into some of these meetings, uh, especially uh, with Doug Keogh and he would always sort of make this joke and it'd be like, oh, and now we come to Blue Grape, a much simpler world than the world <laughs> of Roadrunner. And, but, 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 but here's the, the, the truth of it is that the label made a lot more money than we did. And at the end of the day, that's really what it, it came down to. The margins on the record side are more than double what the margins were on the merchandising side. And, you know, until, you know, I had moved on in my career and we're working for some of the bigger players like Bravado, like Live Nation, where we were making more money than Roadrunner was. And we had, you know, some huge stadium acts that, that were doing, you know, fantastic sums of money nightly did actually feel like I was actually getting any respect from the labels. And even, even now, you know, it's almost 2022 where, okay, you know, the labels have found streaming income, but, you know, what the, the income the labels were making versus what they're making now is very different. I still find it in my current career where sometimes we're giving bigger advances than the label is to the artist we're still treated like second class citizens <laughs> you know and it, it's it, it can be a bit frustrating but but certainly back in the early 90s in those roadrunner days we absolutely we were sort of like an add-on afterthought and you know i can you know confirm what kenny is saying You'd go out on the road to see the bands. And I'd always go out uh, on, on at least a few dates uh, of every tour just to make sure I was still in touch and knew what was going on. And the attitude, especially amongst a lot of the smaller bands, was, you know, this is our gas and food money that you're taking away from us. Now, granted, they didn't understand, you know, when we started giving advances to the bands that, we actually advanced you the money. <laughs> or, or, or um, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you something funny is that um, 
we, we had suffocation from Long Island. Lovely guys. I, I love them. We used to supply them products. So I don't know, Ken, if you had talked about like the difference between vending them versus supplying them. In the last but, you know, so there's, there were two ways of handling the touring for the band, for the bands. One way was we actually vended it soup to nuts. We sent our own guy out on the road. We traveled the tour. We collected all the money at the end of the night and, and banked it. And then we paid a royalty to the band, you know, 30, 45 days after the end of the tour. And that was for most of the bigger tours. And some of the smaller tours, we simply were acted as a printer. We printed a bunch of stuff, sent it to the band. They had their own person who sold it. They kept all the money, except that they were supposed to pay us for the shirts. Supposed. You know, and the key word here is supposed to, <laughs> because, you know, then all of a sudden we'd get a call like, oh, we had a really big night. We need more shirts. And I'd be like, fine. Well, you haven't paid your invoice. It's been, you know, 30 days. You were supposed to pay in seven to 10 days. You know, if you pay it, I'll send you more stuff. Like, oh, well, the van broke down and, and we had to get a new engine. So we used all the money. So we don't have it. And, and then, you know, because they were on the label and because, you know, we were, you know, pretty good, reasonable people would be like, yeah. okay, we'll send you more product. But this time you really got to pay. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, these bands, their bills would be $10,000 that they owed us in product. And for a small band touring in a van, that's a big debt. Mm. And then it's like, and then they wouldn't pay it. <laughs> and then I'd have Casey, you know, and Doug come to me and be like, because, you know, they'd be looking at our accounts receivables being like, well, why does this band owe so much money? And you're like, well, the van broke down. And, you know, the, it's like, you can't operate like that. You're, you're operating at a loss on these. So uh, Suffocation owed a bunch of money. I don't know, I want to say five, $6,000. And they wanted more shirts. And they were playing at Asbury Park. And I actually had a really bad case of the flu. And I was really ill. But I was like, this was the closest show to New York. And I was like, fuck it. And that so, won't walk me. <laughs> so I went down there Jeez. and I, I'm I'm like death warmed over. Yeah. And and, and I, I went down and collected. And, <laughs> and, and I remember saying to Terrence from Suffocation, I was like, I said, I love you guys, but right now I really hate you because you're turning me into a collection agent, and I hate collection agents. <laughs> <laughs> And, and they paid, you know, to their credit, gentlemen to the end, uh, they, they paid their bill in full. And then luckily, you know, we were able to get away from a lot of the supply deals as the bands got bigger. And, and that problem, you know, eventually went away. Or, you know, we got a little clever and we would ask for like a deposit up front. But, but that was always an iffy issue because they're like, well, you know, we don't really have the deposit. And then he'd go back to Roadrunner and they'd ask for more tour support because we were asking for a deposit. <laughs> and that would that would anger certain people at the label. <laughs> so let, let's talk the, the money then and let's sort of bring the road and the function, the, the HQ function together. So 
on average ballpark, not figures, but how much revenue would a particular product make on the road versus, say, mail order? Was the was the crux of Blue Grape on the road, or was it mostly mail order? Well, no. So I mean, well, you have to look at each one, and I did on their own P and L because each one has a different margin. Yeah. So touring, you know, we always looked at it. If you can make 10 or 12% profit on touring, you called it a good day. And sometimes you couldn't, hmm. you know, I mean, you know, if, if you think about um, all the different pieces of the pie that get split up. So, you know, you're selling a, a shirt and back in those days, you know, we were selling shirts, Ken, what, 25 bucks? Yeah. 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 You know, yeah. Now they're, you know, but back then, so, you know, first the tax man, you know, has his hand in there. So VAT, you know, in Europe and the UK, you know, 20%. Yeah. Average tax rate in the US, 7 8%. You know, here in California, it's nearly 10%. Um, let's say it averages across the US, 7 8%. The hall, which a lot of people who aren't involved in the business don't realize, the venue takes a substantial cut, you know, at least 25%. I mean, I've gone on so many panels where I basically, you know, advocated that, you know, hall fees be reduced or eliminated. And, you know, it's a lot of bands don't understand that is that the venue, they're going to take 25% of what you sell it for. So right off the top. So, you know, if you're selling a shirt for 25 bucks, you know, they'll graciously deduct the sales tax and then they'll apply their 25% to your, you know, $23. Um, you know, I don't have a calculator in front of me and my math skills used to be great, but not so good. <laughs> I'll let you do the math, but, you know, that's a big chunk. <clears throat> then, you know, you have to ship the shirts to the road. So there's a freight cost and that's three to 4%. Then, you're sending a road guy out on the road. Well, you've got to pay his salary. You've got to pay his daily per diem. You've got to put him up sometimes in hotels a few weeks. Um, you've got to pay for the display costs. I mean, it, if you're renting uh, a truck, if there's no space on the equipment truck, or if there's no space for the road guy on the bus, well, that's another 5 6% right there. And then it's actually the cost of the garment itself, which is roughly, let's say, I don't know, 20%. So, I mean, I remember uh, with the guys from Shelter who we did a supply deal with, and they were donating like $3 from every shirt they sold to the Hare Krishna temple. And at the end of the tour, they were in the red. and they, They couldn't understand it. So I remember I had Ray come into the office and, and I drew on a blackboard like we were in school, a big pie chart. And, I, <laughs> and, and he was selling the shirts for yeah, $15, yeah, you yeah. know. And I showed him, by, he was like losing like 2 or $3 on every shirt because he was giving the money away to the temple. And it was like a huge, he's like, well, what do I do? I was like, you got to sell the shirt for more. Yeah. Sell them for 20, or sell them for 25 bucks if you want to give away your profit. Hey, I respect that. But, 
this is why you're losing money. Um, and so, you know, look, that's why shirts are as expensive as they are at mm. the concerts, because there's all these people from the promoter and the building have their hand in it. So at the end of the day, as a merchandising company, you know, you need to make some profit. You know, it's, I mean, although a lot of the bands didn't really understand why we needed to, but I said, look, you know, we have to keep the lights on, yeah. you know, they're, they're, they're charging. Come on. Yeah. Plus, you know, I, I'd like to get paid some kind of salary, you know, <laughs> just so I can put food on my table. And, and and what they didn't understand further is that when we started paying advances, it was a cost of money. You know, we didn't even factor that in in most of the margin. So if you look at the, the touring, the, you know, maybe the per unit profit uh, was a higher amount. So let's say 10% of 25 or, or $30 is $250 or $3 per unit. So unit-wise, that was okay. But margin-wise, I mean, 10%, what business can successfully survive on a 10% margin? And I'll, I can answer that for you. The answer is none. <laughs> you know? If you look at, you know, like a real fashion company, you know, look at any of the fashion companies out there, they're probably working on a 25%, 30% margin. You know, we used to have our blue grape t-shirts uh, milled in the same factory that was making Calvin Klein shirts. The only difference was ours got a blue grape label. His got a Calvin Klein label. His sold for like four or five times the amount that ours did. It was the same black 100% cotton t-shirt. Mm. He was making a great margin. <laughs> we weren't. <laughs> yeah. one, one thing as well is this is when we, when we go back to the, the 90s, we're dealing cash as oh, well, yeah. right? So what, what's, oh. the, what's the oh. environment then, Kenny, when you're doing a Dynamo or you're doing a Monsters of Rock <laughs> and something sold well, you're not just texting someone saying, we've done well tonight. You've got fucking crates of cash. Yeah, we did. So yeah. what's the threshold or the tolerance for missing stock? Because I bet this happens all the time. I think this might be something that Marcus mentioned to me because they've got to, you'll be having to provide certain T-shirts to the bands. Yeah, the band's girlfriends, the band's girlfriends, fucking other boyfriends. Yeah. There's all there's always expenses, you know. I mean, there's always there's always people to be, you know, taken care of. You know, one hand washes the other. Yeah. <laughs> so it depends whose girlfriends turned up, you know, <laughs> or are they actually a girlfriend? Hmm. You know, are they a new girlfriend? But uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was always something that. Um, I I felt was kept quite tight, you know. I mean, uh, everything is again. I, I came to it like you know, it was kind of unexpectedly uh, new, and you didn't, you know, you didn't realize that perhaps you were the source of hospitality. I was just like, maybe it's maybe it's just because I'm Scottish, but I, I don't want to give anything away, you know. <laughs> I mean, so it was like, no. I mean, there's there's a limited amount of comps as you you know like but no it's just generally keep it to the absolute minimum so there wasn't a situation where say you've done a gig and the next day you're tying up and you, your uh, numbers are out by a grand or something uh, like that well no 
because you make them sign for the comps. And, you know, look, right. I mean, very, very early on, I mean, we had spreadsheet programs that, you know, you use to track the inventory because, look, inventory, you know, is, is the killer. Mm-hmm. If your inventory is off by a thousand bucks a night, you're screwed. You know, you can't have that. So that was one thing that we kept collectively, you know, very, very tight. Um, and there was, look, there are certain times when you'd be like, look, sorry, but, you know, we're going into a, a big market tomorrow and we need every piece of, you know, we've got because we're not going to be able to get another shipment, you know, till we're in Dresden and, and <laughs> we're going into, and we're in Berlin tomorrow. Yeah. So, you know, you can have your comps in Dresden. Yeah. <laughs> or you give them the comps at the end of the tour, you know, as yeah. well. Yeah. There are always well, ways. Of, a lot of the time, you know, I mean, you're, uh, you're doing that on tour, you know, people want stuff you know, from you, and you're kind of like, ah, yeah, not to, I'm busy right now, mate, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, when I was on the road, I don't want to give stuff away, as I say, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's like, yeah, all right, I'll get you later on, and then you're getting more and more towards the end of the tour, and in the classic, for every road guy would know this, on the last day of the tour, you want to be hiding somewhere, you know, <laughs> you're not going into catering, you're not hanging out backstage. You're like, because uh, these fuckers are after you. You know, they're wanting stuff. And you're like, uh, I don't want to give them anything. So, you know, you're just like, uh, uh, I want to be invisible in the last day of the tour. Because there's nothing worse than like, you know, 30 people coming out at you, you know, on the last night and you're running out of stuff. Because as Felix says, you know, to us on the road, it's the inventory that will kill you. You know what I mean? You're like, you're either overstocked or you're understocked, you know. It's like, if you're overstocked, it's the end of the world for you. You feel it, it's a nightmare. But it's as bad if you're like, you know, understocked, you're going, oh my God, I've not got enough stuff. So, you know, last yeah. thing it's like somebody giving it, oh, I need uh, three of them, mate. You know what I mean? Or the singer coming out going, the family's here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Gloria, like, you know, Felix would know the Sepultura, they were, they were like, was it a dozen pieces of every single item? Oh, you know? yeah. And they might come out right. the first night and go, yeah, we need we need a dozen of everything. You're like, what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you killed, yeah, you, you just killed our whole projection. Yeah, exactly. Straight <laughs> off the bat. And then you start projecting it. Look, I mean, ironically enough, 30 years later, you know, so I, I work with, with uh, Glenn Danzig and the Misfits, Glenn and Jerry only on all the Misfits reunion shows. And it's all—it's the same, nothing has changed. So what I do now at all the Misfits shows is I set up a separate room called the comp room. And I personally run it myself with a comp form. And I take, I, I, I've done, you know, a dozen of these Misfits reunion shows now. So I know pretty much what the band and crew take. And I, and I, get separate stock that I print up just for comps and I go into the comp room and when it's done, it's done. You know, that's it. Closed. Closed. And my and my road guys, they love that I do that because they're not running around like a chicken with their head cut off every two minutes having to do comps. They can actually mm-hmm. focus on their job. 
yeah. and making sure the stands are filled and you know it, it so nothing's changed you know <laughs> exactly exactly so let's let's jump back into this time period and let's go through the roster so Felix, can you tell me the lizard story please yeah of course so one of the the first jobs that case assigned me to when i took over so this is probably january of 93 um he said look we're we're trying to renegotiate the record contract with deicide and we're having some issues and it was still road racer at that time yeah he wasn't actually even road runner yet and he said and they've had a really bad negative they've had a very negative experience with blue grape so far and they don't want to sign it i told them you know we've hired new people and i want you to go down to tampa and meet with glenn ben so i fly down and i'm listening to um all the deicide records on the plane on my little i think stony walkman yeah on the set, got all the biographies from the label, reading about, you know, the Hoffman brothers and and Glenn. And I get down to Tampa and I go call up Glenn and I think it was a Friday. And he said, you're from Road Racer. I'm not going to meet with you. And I said, well, I'm technically not from Road Racer. I'm from Blue Grape, the merchandising company. He said, I don't care. I'm, out, I'm going out of town this weekend. Not going to meet with you. So I don't, you know, I don't know what to do. I call him. I, I drive out. I, I had his address. I drive out to his house. Cars are gone. There's no one there. <laughs> so Friday night. I ended up going out in Tampa with um, James from Disincarnate, James Murphy, which was another band signed on the Blue Bay. Lovely guy. Saturday, call Glenn again. Nobody's answering. Um, drive back out to the house. Nobody's there. So I leave a note and I said, hey, I'm staying at the Holiday Inn in Tampa. This is my room number, and here's the phone. Please call me. You know, I'm not going to leave town until I meet with you. Saturday night, I go out with obituary. We might have had a few beers that night, especially <laughs> with the Tardy brothers. And I got in late. You know, I, I, I don't remember exactly how late, but let, let's say three. And at 7.30 in the morning, my phone rings in the hotel room. It's Glenn Benton screaming at me that how dare I come out to his house, leave this note. Now, a little hungover, I'm a little tired, and I'm just appall- I'm like, I'm really sorry, Glenn, but look, you know, my marching orders are that I can't leave till I meet with you. And so, you know. One way or the other, we have to meet. He's like, fine, you want to meet with me? Be here in an hour. So 8.30 on a Sunday morning in Tampa. I show up at his house. 
very nice house in, in the suburbs of Tampa. Um, he won't let me in the front door. He said, you're from the label. You don't get to come in my house. <laughs> you can go around back to, and he had this work shed. And he had this Gila monster, a fairly large lizard. And, you know, I don't know a whole lot about lizards and Gila monsters, but my understanding from Glenn is that they get mouth infections quite a lot and they get sick. And you have to treat them with antibiotics and peroxide. So he said, you want to talk about my deal? First, help me. I have to give an injection of antibiotics to the lizard. I'm like, <laughs> okay. He said, I'll hold them down. You give them the shot. Now, at that point in my life, I'd never given an injection to anyone, let alone a lizard. And, you know, but like, hey, you know what? I'm game. I'll do it. So I'm trying to, now the lizard has, you know, these scales, right? It's like, you can't, it's not like our skin where you can just go right through. You have to put a certain amount of force and the right spot. And you have to get through the scales. And I'm struggling with it. And the lizard's like, kind of was like flopping around. And Glenn's got a towel holding it down. Now, if you get hit in the face with the tail of that lizard, you're scarred for life. It's like no joke. So finally, Glenn realizes that I am incompetent at giving the injection. He's like, I'll give the injection. You hold it down. So we switch. And I'm holding down with a towel over its head. So it doesn't try to bite me. Uh, and he gives it the injection. And we, we get through this process. And I'd like to say that it was a bonding experience. And he basically said, you know, not, I think his exact words were, none of those other pussies at the label would have ever done that. And I said to him, I told you before, Glenn, I don't work for the label. I work with the label, but we're our own company. And after that, we got the deal done. And, and I have to say, you know, Glenn's a lovely guy. We, we always got on really well. If I saw him today, I'd give him a hug and buy him a drink. Um, I, you know, I think that he gets, or certainly back then, he got a bad reputation for, um, you know, certain behavior. But, you know, I always got on really well with him. And, you know, there were all these rumors, and none of them were true, you know, that, that he, like, threw a dog out of a moving car for a sacrifice. And none of that was true, you know. Um, he was a good father. He was a good family man. I eventually saw the inside of his house, which was really nice. And, and I and I always contended the reason he didn't want anybody from the label to see the inside of his houses. He didn't want them to see it. Actually, it was quite nice because he was always, uh, you know, pleading poverty that he needed more tour support. And he actually, I think, was doing okay. Um, but. But if it wasn't for that lizard, <laughs> you, know, got you know, I don't think we ever would have got the deal done. And and, and I think we developed a, a good relationship. And he, um, you could say you that know, if you want. No, no, it's it, it's funny. Um, I, I, I keep a home phone and an unlisted number just for emergencies. It's Glenn, and, and <laughs> nobody's supposed to have the number. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and somehow these like solicitor, you know, these these companies trying to solicit things like uh, your car warranty is expired. So whenever I do pick up, I'm usually fairly rude to them. So best I not pick up now. <laughs> it rings again, I will. But uh, that'd be funny. Um, <laughs> no, but you know, it's like you know. I mean, look, Deicide was sort of an interesting band. I mean, I think they were very much ahead of the curve, especially with the theatrical aspect of it. Um, you know, and I, in a lot of ways, I wish they would have had a much bigger budget where they could have actually realized more of like Glenn's dream, you know, because to do what he really wanted to do would have been quite expensive. Um, but he, he look, he, he was a big help. I sent a, a rookie road guy out with him, the kid by the name of Ian Scott. And Glenn really took him under his wing on the tour and, and was as responsible for uh, training him as the rest of us were. So, you know, he's a, I, I, I hope I'm not blowing his image, <laughs> but, um, but, but, but with, with me, we always got on well. That's my take on him as well, because when I went on the road, it was this like, I had no idea, uh, I think we said in the first one, you know, I had no idea who this guy was. Uh, Mandy had told me, big guy with an upside down cross, burnt in his forehead, what, you know, like that. <laughs> it's like a maniac, you know, and um, you get out there and it's all quite raw, you know, like trying to be really macho and you're like, yeah, whatever, you know. And then, as you as you got more into it and you spent more time, you realise that you know oh, they're all right, they're all fine. And then I mean, I remember like you know meeting like two years later, uh, like certainly him couldn't be nicer. You know, I mean, like at a Dynamo or something like that. You know, yeah. it's like, Jesus, you've actually met a really good friend. You know, here, you know, yeah. I mean, spent some time on the road with, and so you know, I guess it's. The usual, you know, people's mystique goes before them and stuff like that. As you said, yeah. the rumours are usually all bollocks. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and look, at the end of the day, I mean, he was actually a very smart businessman. I remember being with them at Lemoore's in Brooklyn, and, you know, he went into the office himself to collect their guarantee for that night. And, you know, they tried to cheat him a little bit, as these promoters will do. And... He wouldn't have any of it. He knew exactly how many people were in the building, what his guarantee was, what his overage was. Uh, a really smart guy, you know. And then, look, I mean, the other thing I'd say, especially, you know, those days with a lot of those bands, we spent so much time with them. And I think sometimes because of the label's relationship, they would bring us in early probably earlier than a non-affiliated merchandising company would have gotten in, that we did develop a lot of relationships with the artists uh, that I still have to this day. You know, I was just talking with Bert from Fear Factory, and I'm going to help him out on, he's doing a UK tour in February, hopefully. It's going to go on in February. And we're going to help him with merchandise. Um, I still see a lot, you know, especially living here in Los Angeles and going to a place like the rainbow, you know, I still see a lot of the LA based yeah. bands that we worked with back in the day. And, Jesus. you know, we're still friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> I was going to ask what the, the Sepultura experience is, simply because when you think of Sepultura as an entity, one of the selling points that I'm sure the record side can contest with, well, so can, can um, confer with this as well, is the Brazilian aspect was kind of the novelty, kind of the selling point. It was a unique aspect of a metal band. I imagine that reflected in the merch as well. People coming to see it probably wanted to make sure they were part of this really unique and wonderful thing. And I bet I reflected in how much money they were putting over. Therefore, I bet that folks with your projections, when you think of, we've got a thrash metal band, thrash metal bands usually pull X, but this one's from Brazil and they're fucking good. So it's going to, was there a particular modus operandi when you had to deal with them? Well, you know, yes, they're Brazilian, obviously, but I looked at them as Metallica. You know, it's like, to me, you know, they they were destined to be the next Metallica. And that's, you know, they were, you know, for a long time, they were our biggest band. Mm. And, um, you know, you could just take a look at the type of numbers they were moving on the road, what they were doing in mail order, what they were doing in retail. And, you know, they should have been the next Metallica, really, you know, at the end of the day. So even though there was sort of this, you know, they looked at themselves as a tribe. So there was always, uh, you know, a lot of tribal artwork aspect to it. And, you know, we would do the, um, you know, the Brazilian colors, the the blue, the, the yellow, the green. We would do the soccer jerseys. Because obviously, you know, Brazilian football was, you know, huge for them. Um, but but at the end of the day, they, they were just a, a great metal band. Yeah. And that's, you know, that was kind of, I, you know, certainly in the States, that's how we sold them, is that, you know, they're the second coming of, of Metallica. Now, what made it a little interesting is that Glory Cavallero, who, uh, you know, was the manager, who ultimately, you know, Max married, um, her daughter ended up being the merch seller. Now it was sort of a, a condition that, that came along with the deal. So Christina Newport um, worked for us, but again, you know, she was the manager's daughter and, and the, uh, and she was really, part of the fabric of the band. Um, so, you know, sometimes it created an interesting dynamic, uh, but she was, a, you know, she was very, she was good at her job. Um, and we sold, you know, we sold boatloads uh, of Sepulcher merchandise. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, I recently got a request from uh my current company's retail department from um, a young woman that works in our retail department who said to me, have you heard of this band Sepultura? <laughs> and I sent her a picture from 1994 from Sao Paulo, Brazil of me with Sepultura at uh, Andreas's wedding. And we all, before the day before the wedding, we'd all gone to the Sepultura fan club. And down in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, they were like the Beatles. Mm. It was, you know, I, 
it was one thing being with them in Europe and at festivals or just, you know, on tour in the U.S. and Europe. But being with them in Brazil and especially in Sao Paulo, they were huge down there. I mean, they were treated like gods. You know, everywhere they went, people were stopping them for autographs. And people forget, you know, how big these guys really were in their prime. Mm. I mean, they were huge. You know, it's uh, so, yeah, it was just very interesting dynamic working with them. I mean, they really um, relaunched our retail distribution network on, on the backs of KSAD's merchandise. And, you know, none of this was lost on Gloria, by the way. <laughs> when Gloria, would, when Gloria, you know, Gloria knew their value to the company. She had a very special relationship with Angelique, as, you know, as she said, two powerful women in music in, in an area dominated by men. And when Gloria wanted uh, an advance, she let you know. You know, it's like, <laughs> and and Case, you know, uh, to his credit, realized you know the importance of Sepultura to to the Roadrunner world, uh, and took very good care of them. Does uh, does that ring true with your experience on the road, Kenny? Absolutely. You know, I mean, um, the uh, well, all, all parts of it actually. Uh, you know uh, the. Gloria, you know, was um, because I because I, I came across Sepultura as I said in that our first chat really early in my sort of on the road career, you know, and um, you know she and so I met Sepultura and you're like who the hell are these people? Never heard of them, and then it was just this explosion of like my God, you're right, they are popular, and uh, you know Gloria was at the centre of it. And, uh, you know, she was a great person. And, uh, you know, I've not spoke to her for, you know, quite a number of years, obviously, but, you know, she was fantastic. And, you know, we I think we had a really good relationship all the way through her working career and stuff like that. But you wouldn't want to mess with her either. You know, I mean, it'd be like that. Because she, if she wanted something, like I say, she'd be out, hey, Kenny, I need those, you know, dozen of everything for everybody right now. You know, like that. whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. Yeah, but you don't you don't want to upset her because you know your day is gonna go downhill rapid. But um yeah, and and uh Felix said Christina uh would generally be on the road as well, so she'd be watching out as well. So you'd have to be on your toes. But then again, you know, I was I was happy with that anyway, because you know, I'm just like boom, let's get this done, let's sell, stuff like that, you know. Um but you know, it was just it was a different experience because, as, as Felix says, the, they were a tribe, and fucking hell, what a, you know, what a tribe of not just the band but like the crew, you know, in those days, like they were all such characters, dangerous, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know, we were driving around in a van, and like you know, it was in the end you decided that that was fortunate because we weren't on the bus with these guys, you know, <laughs> Silvio, Nino, like, oh, Jesus Christ, you know, like, it was just a good day, you know, uh, like, also, Eddie, brilliant friend of mine now, but, like, you know, I mean, it was just like, 
they were maniacs, you know, maniacs back in '93 on the road. <laughs> you know, so, um, you're trying to you're trying to be, you know, because you're trying. You've got a business, you know. To, you're actually, you know, you're actually have to be financially responsible. You've got a sales job to do, and you've got. And the business we were doing at that time, Chaos AD, Europe, 1993, was just, as Felix says, they should have been Metallica. I mean, they were on their way to being Metallica. You know, yeah. at that point, you know, the merchandise sales in like all over Europe, Germany in particular, were unbelievable. You know, so there's this chaos it's not just the name of the record. There's chaos going on everywhere. And you've got to try and remain, like, in the middle of it. You know, like, you know, getting getting rid of all this stuff. But they were so fantastic. And um, it was just, you know, it's even looking back on it now, like, it, it, was a, it was such a pleasure to work with those guys. And it was such an eye-opener. But, I mean, I, mean, I, I bumped into, I saw Eddie, um, who was, I'm trying to remember if Eddie was the, like the drum tech at the first time, but then became like laterally he became like the tour manager. Eddie Rosha, that you know, he tour yeah, manager. Yeah, I remember Eddie. Yeah, so Eddie, like you know, he's he, he was road manager for Motorhead in the end. You know, <laughs> such a brilliant guy. But you know, all these all these guys that were on the road with them at the beginning, you know, they were fantastic. They were crazy, but you just all. You had such a, they were so welcoming and friendly. And if you got in, if you were all right, I guess is what it is. Mm. If you yeah, if you're in, you're in the tribe, you're in. Oh, that's right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So that was that, you know? But remember uh, then, they all got into the whole Brazilian jiu-jitsu, especially Igor. <laughs> so, yeah, you didn't want to be on that bus if you didn't have to. Exactly, exactly. Because they were practicing. I saw Igor in London, like, Two years ago, totally unexpectedly. I was, in fact, it was at a Sisters of Mercy show. So I do their merch, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm down. I'm talking, because it's all set up and my friend's there doing something and I'm standing talking. And in the background, I can hear a guy talking to somebody like next to us. And I'm like, that's fucking familiar. It's <laughs> the voice. Yeah, so, you know what I mean? And I'm like, what the fuck? I turn around. And yeah, it was Igor. He was there. He was friends with the, the Belgian support band or something like that. But he lives in London. You know, he was saying, which I was yeah. like, in my mind. I was like, you live in fucking London now, mate? You know, but <laughs> yeah, it was fantastic. Say, running into him. Yeah, that was the same tour. Like, two months That's later, great. we were in Brazil, you know, meeting Eddie and stuff like that, you know? So, um yeah, at Sepultura, such good memories, but the tribe was everything, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you got any of then it was okay. It's tough, but, you know, like, the business would be tough, you know, and uh, Felix would be at the front of that, you know, because he would be having to deal with, you know, you would deal with Glory on the road, but if there was a problem, she'd go on the phone, you know what I mean, and give them more of a problem. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no... And if she didn't like what I said to her, then she'd call up Angelique. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And nobody wanted that. <laughs> <laughs> Is it true that there's an instance where Typo wouldn't go on stage until 
some underwear was produced and sold or something like that. It's like they insisted on like panties being created or something like that. I read that somewhere. Is that bollocks? Well, we, we, well, we gladly created the poop. We sold a lot of bloody kisses panties for them. Right. There was never, I mean, I thought it was, it was, it was a great idea. We were doing um, panties for all the bands at that time. Uh, <laughs> right. We even, like, were, we even were doing panties for some, we had, uh, we had done a deal, a licensing deal with um, this company, Signatures Network, and we were doing Ozzy, Black Sabbath, and I think a couple of their other metal bands, and we were doing panties for them as well, because nobody else was really doing panties at the time. And the Bloody Kisses one, you know, Peter's like, I, he wants the lips right in the crotch. I, I wish I still had a pair of them. I mean, they were brilliant. You know, it's... Uh, whilst, we're, you know, whilst we're now recording, Kenny, do you want to show the... Um... The site. Christmas as well, unfortunately. I should have sent them. <laughs> yeah. I always keep a spare pair. <laughs> you know. Do you want, yeah. Do you want to... no. yeah, I don't know why anybody would say they wouldn't, we wouldn't go on stage. I mean, the, I, I have no recollection of that. I mean, we, we gladly did, you know, panties and all kinds of stuff with them. <laughs> you know, it's a, I mean, there, there are certain stories, unfortunately, with typo. That, that, that I can't say on record. That's how I know I can cut back in. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, it was Kenny, a different time, man. It was a different time. It was a different time. It was a different, it was a different time, and yes. Yeah. Things have moved on for the better, right? How, how are you guys doing for time? Because I've, I've not even touched the 21st century yet. I, I'm good. I mean, I, I'm off this week, so... Um, you know, I actually have nothing to do. Do you, do you want to crack open it? Should we let's formally open up the invitation then, Felix? Do you want to crack open a beer? Sure. <laughs> yeah. <Yay! laughs> <laughs> I kind of felt bad because we were just.